Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, the name that is over all, the name that has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, the only name given among men by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. It is that name we declare today. You are king. You are the faithful witness. You are the alpha and the omega. You hold the keys of death and Hades. You are the head of this church. You are the authority of this church. You are the cornerstone of this church. You are its architect and the builder of this house. And it is that name that we ascribe worth and glory to and majesty and honor and praise. There is no other worthy. So God, take all that we have right now. Take all that we can give. It is so far less of what you deserve, but it's what we have to give. Help us to humble ourselves right now under the authority of you, the authority of your word, and change us, God. Let us cast those anxieties we've brought in here on you because you care for us, and you're the only one who's meant to carry them. Let us cast those on you, the fears, the doubts, the hurt, the pain, the struggle, all at the feet of Jesus right now. We cast those on you. God, speak to us through your word. Guard my mouth from error. Say what you want to say and unify and build and save and sanctify in your church today. Would you please come, Lord? In Jesus' name, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, church, let's open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 to 3 today. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. If you do not have a copy of God's word in front of you, our ushers are coming forward right now, we would like to place one in your lap. Just put your hand up and then our ushers will give you one. And if you do not have a copy of God's word at home, then please keep that as a gift for you so you can continue to study God's word in your personal time as well. And in those Bibles that are being handed out, the passage today is on page 568. Page 568. Well, here we are in the second to last message of our series, Building the House, God's Heart for the Home. And over the past seven weeks, the purpose of this series has really focused on what is God's heart? What are God's desires for the home? What does he promise to bless and give support to in the home? If I could sum it up, I'd say it this way. What does a house being built by the Lord look like? Not just for the biological family, but for the church family, the house of God corporately as well. And so last week we looked at one of the greatest virtues that God always promises to build the home through, no matter what's coming against it, what's opposing it, and that virtue was humility. Humility. And this week we look at the impact of humility. The impact of humility in our relationships. And we quickly see one of the most powerful things that God promises to bless and build the house through. Yet, yet, one of the most prominent things that is missing in both the home 
and in the church. And that is unity. God's heart for the home is a heart for our unity. How do we know this? Psalm 133 says, How good and pleasing it is when God's people dwell together in unity. And here's the promise for that in verse 3. For there the blessing of the Lord is commanded. God will bless the united house. And what's the blessing? Life forevermore, it says. Life. Life in our biological homes, life in the church. So we, don't, we hear unity thrown around a lot, this term today. Let's not assume we're all on the same page here as to what it means. Let's get God's definition of unity. Unity in the Greek means this. You'll see it on the screen. When you see it here in the text, it means oneness. A God, notice this. A God-produced agreement between believers. It's not something we can manufacture. It is God-given and it's God-driven. A God-produced agreement between believers that comes from sharing the likeness of Christ's nature. All those who've been born again in Jesus Christ and have surrendered their lives to him as their Lord and Savior, we've been given a new nature. And this is where our unity comes from. But we have a problem that we quickly see encountered with this. Just look around. Loved ones, we live in a world where we hear a lot about unity. But the world is increasingly divided. Why is that? It's because what the world is pursuing is unity doesn't work. Because unity is God-given. True unity is always God-given. You can't manufacture it. We live in a world that's increasingly divided by age, race, sex, wealth, position, status, ethnicity. And more and more we see the home, we see the church taking on the values of the world, the agendas of the world, the priorities of the world, the attitudes of the world. And the result is this. Our homes and our churches are increasingly broken divided generation after generation. Of course they will be. If you're taking on the values of the world, you will start to look like the world, loved ones. In your home and here in the church. And the result is homes and churches increasingly divided. Why is this? Did Jesus not see this coming? Oh, he saw it coming. Mark 3 24 to 25, you'll see it on the screen. Jesus says this, if a kingdom, that is a country, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. How's it going in our country these days? How's it going across the world these days? How about this, verse 25? And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. It's a sobering word for us today, loved ones. And so we have to ask the question. That, those verses beg the question. How can we as the church, corporately and individually in our homes, live in the unity that we are called to? 
the one that God promises to bless, that God produced unity in the face of the diversity, in the face of the cultural pressures, in the face of the enemy attacks against us. How is it possible to live in the unity that God promises is available to us and he will build the house through? Well, here in our text, we see two truths we must embrace if the house is to stand united in Jesus Christ biologically and corporately is the church. Two truths we must embrace if we are to stand united in Christ and see him build it to endure for his glory. Ready, loved ones? To stand to honor the authority of God's word. Ephesians chapter four. And let's read verses one to three. Unity in the body of Christ. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, the first thing we see here is that God will build the house through unity. We must increasingly walk in a manner worthy of Christ. We must increasingly, you never hit your Christ ceiling. It's not like I'm enough like Christ on this. You never get to that point. So that word increasingly there is so key. Increasingly walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And the question that confronts us that needs answering from this part of the text is this. I am called to live a life worthy of Jesus Christ. Am I walking in him? I am called to live a life worthy of Jesus Christ. Am I walking in him? Look at verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let's get some context here. It's about between 60 and 62 AD here. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, where's Ephesus? It's modern-day Turkey. You'll see it on the map. There it is. Okay, it's the church in Ephesus, a strategic city in Europe. And now, here's what's interesting. Paul is writing this while chained to a Roman guard under house arrest in a Roman prison. It's pretty amazing. Here he is chained to the guard. What would you be writing at that moment? He's chained to, a Roman, chained to a Roman guard and he's been detained in the Roman prison for preaching the gospel. The gospel will have a cost, loved ones, if we're going to walk in Jesus Christ. But will we still walk in him? See, and before this time that Paul is writing this, Paul had actually pastored the church in Ephesus for three years while it got established. So it was started, as you see, Acts 18, 19, Priscilla and Aquila, they started that with Paul, and then Paul left, and then the church was struggling, so Paul came, pastored it for three years, and he's passed it off to Timothy at this point. But here's the thing, what happened after Paul left after preaching there for three years, the church was plagued with false teachers and ungodly interpretations of Scripture from within. This is what Timothy's battling. And this led to division in the house of God, both corporately and in the individual lives and homes and families of believers, like today. If I could sum all that up, I'd say this. The house was divided and in danger of falling. 
And so the purpose that Paul is writing Ephesians for, he's writing to the church to exhort them to unity. By reminding the believers about the blessings they have received through salvation in Christ, and he exhorts them to not only be thankful for those blessings that we've received in Christ, but to live. That should affect how we live. What we have received should affect how we live but to live in a manner worthy of them and worthy of the position they now have in Jesus Christ that he has called them to in his divine sovereignty through salvation. He's like, live in a manner that is fulfilling and actual uh, ascribing worth to the gospel of what you've been called to because you share the nature of Christ. And so here he moves, verse, chapter 4 is a transition point in Ephesians. The first three chapters, he, Paul has done extensive unpacking of the doctrine of the gospel, what it is. And now he shifts to the duty. He's moving from doctrine to duty. The duty we have to live out our unity in the gospel practically. What does it practically look like? I'm so thankful God knew we would need help, Amen. He gives us the clarity. What does unity practically look, out, look like if we're going to live out a calling worthy of the gospel? And I love how one commentator, commentator said this. No passage, and what we're about to read right now, he says, no passage is more descriptive of the house of God in action than this one. Ephesians 4. We need to pay attention to this. And look at, let me read it again. This is profound. Verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Awesome. He's chained to a Roman guard and he's urging them to continue in the faith. Awesome. But he uses the word therefore. That's the transition. So based on everything Paul has just finished writing about in chapters one to three concerning the doctrine of the gospel, which is this, the salvation we have in Christ, the blessings we've received through salvation in Christ, and the love of Jesus Christ for us, he's now urging, okay, it's not like this. Paul's not saying, yeah, I urge you. It's just, you know, when you get around to it. You know, when you make some time for it, when you got your Jesus on the side and then you've taken care of everything else, he says this, I urge you. That means to implore urgently. That means fervently admonishing you to do something. If you're going to do one thing, pay attention to what's coming next. I urge you, what's he doing? The believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling they have in Christ as his followers. Now, the word walk there, I love the picture he uses. He used, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. Walk means this, that Greek word means this, to conduct every part of one's daily life. Okay? Every part of one's daily life. Your thoughts, your words, and your actions. Everything. There is nothing that remains untouched. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of that. Conduct every part of one's daily life in a manner that is worthy. That means, the word worthy there, I love this. It means it matches the actual value of what has been given to you. The blessing of heaven, the salvation in Jesus Christ. I'm urging you, church. I'm urging you, loved ones, as I'm chained to this guard 
to walk in a manner that matches the value increasingly of what you've been given. That increasingly shows the nature of Christ from being called by God, saved in Christ, and now, oh, let your walk match the position you now have in him because of salvation. If I could sum that up, I'd just say it like this. It's living with sacrificial obedience that matches one's position in Christ as his followers who share his nature increasingly. We are to live as Christ lived. That's a worthy walk. That's a unifying walk. Now let's get some clarity though on a few things. God calls people to himself by his grace. You can't earn the call of God on your life. Impossible. God calls people to himself by his grace before the foundation of the world. And he blesses them with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. If you're in Jesus Christ today, does that not rock your mind? That God blesses us with every spiritual blessing that he can give us when we are his children. And now we are to live worthy of that privileged calling in his power. So, begs the question, what is the position in Christ that we've received? If we have surrendered our life to Jesus Christ, we believe that he came as fully God and fully man, died on a cross for our sin that you and I deserved, he paid the penalty for that, and then rose again three days later, swallowing the, the, the sting of death for all time, saving us from an eternity in hell, and if we have confessed him as our Lord and Savior, what does that mean? What is our position now in him? Yeah, we can say sons, okay, what does that mean? Let's just get a little snapshot, shall we, by looking at Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul has unpacked it. You'll see it on the screen. It means this. Number one, if I am in Jesus Christ, when I am called by Christ, I am chosen. I am chosen. Look at Ephesians 1 to 4. Paul writes, even as he, Jesus Christ, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And he did it in love. Now, when we hear I was chosen by God, here's what it means. I am loved by God and chosen to be his through salvation. And there's nothing I did to earn that. Hey, we have different people here and no doubt been in the faith for Certain times, maybe some of us have never surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, but I just want you to think for a moment. If you have been living as a child of God for any length of time, does that truth still blow your mind? Does it blow your mind? There are nine, like roughly nine billion people on this planet right now, and that's just right now. And out of all the people that God could have chosen in his sovereignty. He chose you. If you have received him. He chose to open your heart. He chose to reveal to you by his spirit who he is and your need for him. Does that not blow your mind? I mean, I look back over this last week, I'm like, sometimes I'm like, God, what were you thinking? Just me, maybe? Just me? 
Like, what were you thinking? He's like, I'm thinking that I love you. Son, I chose you before I created anything. Let it blow your mind. Don't become familiar with that. I'm chosen by God. I'm loved by him eternally. It is steadfast. I'm chosen to be his. Here's the next thing. I'm adopted. So God chose us, but now he has adopted us. Look at Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us. That means he chose us before the foundation of the world for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Not according to what we did. Not according to what he knew we would do. So it's not like he looked at me and said, oh, okay, so I'm going to make Ray a pastor, so I better save it. It had nothing to do with what we did. Everything to do with his love. He brought us into God's family, and we will not be rejected. Think about this, your position in Christ, if we live this out. How, how much, look around the world today, how many of us live in the constant fear of rejection? The fear of man, always. Fear of rejection in our families. The fear of rejection in the workplace. The fear of rejection by our neighbors. But when you have, recognize your position in Jesus Christ, that you have been adopted as a son and daughter of the King of Kings, there is no fear of rejection. How would that change how you respond in those circumstances? You are adopted and we come, we look around, we see so many broken homes. Some of us in this room from broken homes. And it's just devastation. The idea of adoption, it like terrifies us. But God's like, I will never leave you or forsake you. I see it. But I am a father to the fatherless. I love you. I have called you. I have chosen you. I have adopted you. And you're not going anywhere. Because none can snatch you from my hand. Awesome. Awesome, loved ones. When we are in Jesus Christ, when we are called by Christ, here's our position. We're chosen, we're adopted, but it doesn't stop there. We are redeemed and forgiven. Look at Ephesians 1.7. In him, that is in Jesus Christ alone, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, that is our sins against him, according what? To the riches of his grace, not according to my good works. According to the riches of God giving us what we don't deserve. What that means is this. My price for sin is paid. My debt that I owed God, almighty, holy, awesome creator of the universe who created me, I owed him a debt I could not pay, and that debt was from my sin. And Jesus Christ pays it. My price is paid, and I am no longer a slave to it. Think about this past week. How often do we just go back and go back and go back? Even though we're in Jesus Christ, we're not walking. We don't realize the position we have in him. That he's given us all the power we need to fight that temptation that is knocking at the door and will be maybe even right now in your own heart. When you leave here, that's coming. Here it is. Here's the temptation. Really, really? You think you're, on, you think you're growing in the Lord? And the devil just comes and pushes that fear button, pushes that anxiety button, pushes that lust button. Push it. You insert it. Right then you have to remember your position in Christ. You are redeemed, and it is for freedom, Galatians 5.1 says, that Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You are free, loved one. 
Not free to do what you want, but free to live out the calling we've received by the power of the gospel, in the power of the gospel. No longer a slave. There's no condemnation. How many of us are living in condemnation and guilt right now? When I'm called by Christ, I'm chosen, I'm adopted, I'm redeemed and forgiven. Here's, here, it just keeps going. I have an inheritance. I have an inheritance. Look at Ephesians 1.11. In him, that is again, in Jesus Christ alone, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined, here it is again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have an inheritance for eternity that I cannot lose. What's that inheritance? Heaven. Hey, let me dispel some myths from the world. Not all roads lead to heaven. Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. I don't care what this world throws at you. What lies and deception it tries to get us to believe. There's one way. And there's an inheritance there. My inheritance is no longer death in hell, but is eternal life in heaven with Christ in his presence. That's the inheritance. And that can't be taken away. That's guaranteed for every believer. Does that fire you up to live with some joy today? It's really hard to live a grumpy life when you remember the inheritance we have. Oh man, I'm going to heaven and be like worshiping Jesus for all eternity and in his presence, no more pain, suffering. Man, I'm having a bad day. Really? Really? Think about it, loved ones. How much if we remember the position we have in him and the inheritance we've been given in him, how would that change your attitude? It doesn't stop there. When I'm called by Christ, I'm chosen, I'm adopted, I'm redeemed, I'm forgiven. Look at the power of the gospel. I have an inheritance, but not only that, I have the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. Look at Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In him, that is again, in Christ alone, you also, when you heard the word of truth, that is, the word of God, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. See, there it is. When you believed. It's not enough just to say, yeah, I think Jesus exists. It's like, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. There's a big difference. He says, when that happened, at that moment you believed, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his Glory. You, if you are in Jesus Christ, your position is this. You've been given the power of God inside of you. The power of the Holy Spirit has been given to you to, to comfort you with God's comfort, to give you God's power, to give you God's wisdom to live. Think about this. When you go into that situation tomorrow in the workplace, when you're going into that, that scary moment, when you're going into that argument with your spouse, think about this. I have a comforter. I have a helper, I have a teacher who is making me more like Jesus and is with me at all times. I am not walking into this alone. I'm gonna humble myself under him. That's awesome. Let that saturate your hearts right now, loved ones. That is the beautiful, just a snapshot of the position we have through Jesus Christ. So you might say this, well, that's the position, but what does this practically look like to live out? How do I know if I'm living a walk worthy of this calling? What does it practically look like in my home? What does it practically look like in my marriage? What does it practically look like in the church, in the workplace? Here it is, look at verse two. 
Look at verse 2. So thankfully tells us so clearly. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Here it is. With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now he says all. Notice that? Circle the word all there in verse 2. With all. Not just when you feel like. Not just oh, when that person's earned me to walk with humility. He says all of you, all the time, all in. Now watch this. Watch this. What's the first attribute of a worthy walk there's four here number one is this first attribute of a worthy walk humility not pride humility not pride look at verse two with all humility of course he starts with that god's a god of order humility is gonna be the foundation for the rest what is humility if you remember from last week you'll see the definition the greek word of humility on the screen it says this Lowliness of human pride that is God-reliant, not self-reliant. And results in an attitude that one is not too good to serve. It is produced by comparing ourselves to the Lord rather than to others. And this brings behavior into alignment to keep one from being self-exalting and inflated. See, humility must come first here because everything else Paul's about to mention flows out of it. If we're walking in pride, you think you're going to be gentle? If we're walking in pride, you think you're going to be loving forbearance? Uh Uh-uh. Humility has to come first because if unity is to exist, humble, God-dependent people must be living for the glory of God and not themselves. And they must be living for the good of others not themselves. There is no other way unity can happen because unity never happens when we put ourselves first. That's called pride and that causes nothing but division. And you see, the defining mark of a humble walk is that God, then others, always takes precedence. God before me, you before me. And we see this modeled in the life of our king. Look at Philippians Chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Here's Jesus. Look at what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is the example of ultimate humility, and there is the power that resides in us to do the same. If we are in him. See, this is radical. This is absolutely radical from the message this world preaches. We live in a world that loves and promotes self-exaltation. I'm going to have my schedule for what I want to do. It's my time for when I want to do it. It's my way for how I want to do it. It's my stuff. It's my desires for why I want to do it. 
and it's ultimately for my glory. How long, how healthy do you think the marriage is going to be when that's the attitude? How long, how healthy do you think the house of God corporately in his church is going to be when that's the attitude? Me first, me first, me first. God backseat, you backseat. How's that going? Just look around our world, loved ones. How's it working? But the one who knows their position in Christ, the one who is increasingly aware of the love that has been given to them as Christ laid down his life for us, the inheritance that they've been given, the forgiveness they have received, that person never has to exalt themselves because Christ is increasingly exalting in them. When they recognize their position in him. Like how many, think about this. How many conflicts in our homes, how many conflicts in the church are resulting from us trying to exalt ourselves with our spouse? She's going to do it my way. He's going to do it my way. I'm going to stamp my foot in the ground and forget humility. I'm right, you're wrong. How many conflicts in the home? Right there. How many, how many conflicts with our children? With our brothers and sisters in Christ? How about this? This leads to selfishness, not generosity. How many conflicts are caused by greed, not gratitude for what we've received? But greed, how about this, jockeying for position always of who's right and who's wrong and you gotta change because I got my attitude on my shoulder and I'm gonna do it my way. Really? How much of the conflicts, how much collateral damage is being caused? How much division in our homes? How much division in the church? How much hurt and pain and brokenness is being caused by this? The refusal to humble ourselves. Because here's, here's the truth. How much different would our homes and our church look if we just stopped trying to exalt ourselves and the position we want to have. How much conflict wouldn't even exist? See, because here's the truth. You'll see it on the screen. When we live from our position in Christ, we don't have to live for a position in this world. You show me the spouse who's living from their position in Christ... I'll show you a spouse who isn't trying to one-up and prove their right to their spouse. God will defend. God will change. It's not our job. Our job is to humble ourselves. When we live from our position in Christ, we do not have to live for a position in this world. So question, where do you need to humble yourself today before the Lord and others? Where do you need to repent? That you've just, Proverbs says, our words can be like sword thrusts. You've just lambasted someone right out of your pride. Husbands, wives, to your children, to each other, brothers and sisters in the church, in this very room. Where do we need to humble ourselves and go to that person right after this service and say, please forgive me. You know how much healing comes in that? There's no condemnation of rep- on the other side of repentance. There's only comfort. Healing. Secondly is this. 
Four attributes of a worthy walk. Humility, not pride. Number two, gentleness, not harshness. Gentleness, not harshness. Look at this, keep going. With all humility and gentleness. The Greek word for gentleness there means meekness. It means power with reserve. Power with reserve. Let's get some clarity here. You ever heard that expression? Well, meekness is weakness. You ever heard that? Uh, Wrong. Totally wrong. He's not talking about being weak or being timid, but it's power that's under God's control. This is the product of humility. I could lash out that way. I could invoke fear. I could hurt you right now, but my power is under God's control, and I love him, and I love you too much to even go there. I'm choosing to humble myself right now. It's power under control. I love how Tremper Longman III, commentator, he says this, gentleness characterizes the person who does not need to assert or dominate and is not resentful, harsh, or retaliatory. It's the person who knows they don't have to flex their stuff. They don't have to flex their position. They don't have to pull the card of their strength, their experience. They get low before the Lord and allow him to be lifted up. We see this in Jesus, our Savior. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29. Look what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. How many homes right here need to find rest in Jesus Christ? So how about you? Are you walking with gentleness in your words to each other, to your families, to your kids? Are we walking with gentleness in our thoughts towards them? our actions towards them? Or are we walking with harshness and harboring resentment towards our spouse, our kids, and our brothers and sisters in the Lord? Let me, you say, well, how do I know? Just ask yourself this litmus question. Okay, take this question home. Is your spouse, are your kids, are your brothers and sisters afraid to bring up something with you because of how you've retaliated in the past and they're afraid to get lambasted and run over by you again there's a good litmus test ask them ask your kids do you feel like you can come and tell me these things do you feel like you can say you know something to your spouse can your spouse correct you men women without you being defensive and jumping back in retaliation can that happen there's the litmus Who do you need to repent to and ask the Lord to help you make your walk worthy of him in that area? Gentleness, meekness. Who do you need to repent to today? Don't wait. Don't wait. Unity is at stake. Thirdly, four attributes of a worthy walk. Number one, humility, not pride. Gentleness, not harshness. And here it is, patience, not anger. Patience, not anger. Look at verse two. Keep going. With all humility and gentleness with patience. The word patience there means this, long-tempered. How many of us have just a short temper? You ever hear those people, oh, watch out, that guy's got a short fuse. 
That is not to be said of the follower of Christ. The ability to persevere under difficult circumstances that avoids the use of force that comes from expressing anger. See, this is a divinely regulated patience. We can't just muster up, leave here. Okay, I gotta be more patient. Okay, honey, I'm ready. How, how, how long do you think that's gonna last? Okay, kids, I'm gonna be really patient. Ah, quiet! Really? Really? How long do you think that's gonna last if it's not divinely regulated? Right? That's the reality. A lack of patience. Commentator Tony Meredith puts it this way. A lack of patience displays a lack of humility. Did you know that? A lack of patience displays a lack of humility and a lack of love. We grow in this by relying on the Spirit, asking Him for help, and thinking on the patience Christ continues to show us. See? There it gets back to our definition of humility, comparing ourselves to God and not to others. Well, I'm, I'm way more patient than that person, so I'm doing okay. Really, how about compared to God? How's that going? Let's not call the comparison trap here and get horizontal. Well, I'm way more patient than my spouse. I'm good. Really, really? How about compared to God? Have you hit your ceiling there? Careful. And how we see perfect patience? 1 Timothy 1.16. See it in our Savior. Here it is again. But I received mercy for this reason, Paul says, that in me, as the foremost sinner, as the one who is most likely to lose my temper, as the one who is most likely to be impatient, just insert my, I just inserted myself into that text this week, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. His perfect, the patience of Christ is patience perfected. Awesome. Awesome. And that's what's available to us. Through the gospel, that's our position as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So question, are you walking in patience towards your family? Are you walking in increasing patience with your kids, your spouse, your brothers and sisters in Christ here? How about your neighbors or anger and frustration? What's your reputation with them? How much hurt is just caused by this? Saying this, and I was so convicted of this, even this morning, reading through again, how often I say, well, I'm just tired. Like, I'm just super tired. Or I haven't eaten yet. Or, you know, I got a thousand things to do. So therefore, I got this right to be impatient. I got this right to, to be harsh with my kids. I got this right to be angry with my spouse because I'm tired. Listen, God's power is not limited to your tiredness, Okay? It's not limited to how full your belly is. It's supernatural. The question is, in that moment, you lost it with your family or your brothers and sisters. Did you ask them for help to do what was right? It's available. It's available. We can't do this on our own strength, loved ones. Be encouraged. God will not ask from you what he's not first willing to do in you. That's beautiful. Beautiful. All right. The prayer of the humble says, Lord, change me before I go about trying to change my spouse or that brother or that sister. Change me. I'm the one who needs it. Lastly is this, four attributes of a worthy walk. We walk in humility, not pride. We walk in patience, not anger. We walk in gentleness, not harshness. And lastly is this, 
We walk in loving endurance, not rejection. Loving endurance, not rejection. Look at the last part of verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. See, the bearing in love, the term there means this, to endure one's opinions. You see it on the screen. To endure one's opinions and actions with, here it is, mental calmness. How many of us could just use a wonderful, loving, graceful dose of mental calmness right now? Mental calmness. When you're getting kids out the door. Mental calmness when you're in traffic. Mental calmness with those around you. And composure with the affection and goodwill in doing what God prefers to another that is unconditional and continuous. That's the term love, agape. Doing what God prefers to that person unconditionally and continuous. If I could sum it up, it literally means in today's slang language to put up with each other in love and don't condemn, reject, or isolate each other. Put up with each other in love. Listen, if we can't put up with each other here, heaven's just not going to go well for us. Put up with each other in love. Not like, oh, I have to. In love. Help me to love that person that maybe isn't in my quote-unquote, tribe. Help me to love that person from that different culture. Help me to love that person that, I don't know, maybe they're kind of awkward. Help me to love them continuously. Help me to reach out to them. Jesus did this for us. Romans 5.8. He says, well, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He endured the cross for you and me when we had every reason to be rejected. His love endured, and aren't you glad it did? I sure am. So question, who do you need to stop rejecting and start enduring with? God help us, if we ever become the church, if we ever resemble in our homes this, oh, the sarcastic comments of, oh, that person's so annoying, so annoying! You ever get there? This is church, you can't lie. It's so annoying, I just wish they would stop talking. <laughs> Can you lovingly endure, or will you reject? Or this one, oh, that person just gets on my nerves. I try to, you see them in church, or you see them in their home, you're just like, Ooh, love you, brother. Really, really? Got the lingo down, but do we have the love down? just gets on my nerves. Really? Please don't say that to your spouse, by the way. About this, how many cliques form in the church for this very reason? I don't know about you, but I don't think God wants his church to be cliqued out each week. When we come in here, we just sitting and just speaking to the same people all the time. Praise the Lord for loving relationships. Are we going out of our way to meet and introduce ourselves to those who aren't in our groupies? Are we? Or are we rejecting them? Subtly, but you're rejecting them. We don't ever like to call it that, but that's exactly what it is. Are we loving and enduring together and not rejecting? Unity is not preserved without loving endurance, ever. 
See, to see God build the house through unity, we must increasingly walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And from that, last point is this. We must commit to fervently maintain unity in Christ. Commit to fervently maintain unity in Christ. The question, last question we are confronted with of this part of the text is this. Peace is the bond of unity. Am I living in peace with those around me? Am I living in peace with those around me? Look at verse 3. Eager to maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is the walk worthy of the calling we've received. Paul finishes here by saying that as believers live out their calling in Christ in his power, they must be eager to maintain unity in the spirit of the bond of peace. The word eager there is not like this. When you feel like it, loved ones. Just, you know, when they do something really nice for you and it's easy to be at peace with them. No, no, no. Eager means this, to act swiftly. If there's division, you act swiftly. You do not let the devil get a foothold in. In your home, in this church, you act swiftly, fervently, with a speedy commitment to live at peace. That's the word eager. To preserve or watch over the unity they have, the church has through the Holy Spirit from being joined together in Christ. Now notice this. Notice this in verse 3. Watch the language. Eager to maintain the unity. It's not like, don't be eager to create unity. You and I can't create unity. We already have unity in the gospel. We already have unity through the Holy Spirit that is inside of us. We can't create this, but we are called to maintain this by living at peace with one another. The word peace there means this. All the essential parts. I love it. See it on the screen. All the essential parts are joined together in wholeness without division. All the essential parts joined together. That's the oneness. Peace is the bond that holds unity together. Tremper Longman finishes it with this commentator. He says this. Peace forms a bond. Think of glue. Peace forms a bond, a kind of glue that cements members of the church to one another in Christ. Beautiful picture. Christ achieved peace for us through his death, and as such, Christians must maintain unity by, here it is, sparing no effort, doing everything we can to live in peace. Quarreling, gossip, resentment, fractures, and hostilities destroy the unity of the Spirit. We are to make every effort to live in peace. Now, think about this. Look around today. This world is, just flip on the news. Go on the internet. You'll see it. This world is crying out for peace. It's crying out for peace. Peace across countries. Peace across races. Peace between sexes. Peace between backgrounds. You name it. It's crying out for that. And the church, loved ones, here's, listen to this opportunity. The church is to be the forerunner of what God's enduring peace and unity looks like until he returns and establishes it for all time. The church is to be the forerunner of what God's peace looks like, real peace. And if the, if the world doesn't see it here, think about this, where are they going to see it? If they don't see it in us as the body of Christ, if they don't see it in our homes, if they don't see us pursuing that, where else are they going to see it? It's amazing when they see this happen. Like, look at the opportunity God has given. There's so many different nations in this church right now. And it makes absolutely no sense we would spend a Sunday morning together if the gospel's not true. It makes no sense. Tribes, 
tongues, nations, from all the forerunner of God's peace and what that looks like. So when people come, they be like, you're hanging out with that person? Like, they're, they're from a different country. Why are you doing that? Because I serve an awesome God who he himself is our peace. I serve an awesome Savior who has ransomed me when I was not at peace with him. That's beautiful. So how can we be eager to maintain unity of the Spirit? What does this practically look like? Romans 12, 18. You'll see it on the screen. It says this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably. Living in peace means I take the initiative. So far as it depends on me, I take the initiative to live at peace with you as much as I possibly can. I don't wait for you to come to me. I take the initiative. I don't wait till you've apologized and then I'm going to go do that. I don't wait till you've repented. Then I'm going to do that. I don't wait till you admit you were wrong. Then I'll admit you were wrong. I take the initiative swiftly, fervently to do so. Christ did that for me. I will do that through his power for you. Don't sit ourselves in pride. Parents, kids, church family, let's not pride ourselves against each other, please. Act swiftly. I will fervently commit to walk in humility, not pride. Laying my life down, sacrificing for you as Christ did for me. I will firmly commit to gentleness, not harshness, using my strength to serve you and not build my status before you. Just as Christ does for me. I fervently commit to patience, not anger, listening to you in love and not lashing out as Christ does for me. I firmly commit to loving endurance and not rejection. I commit to bearing with you in love to care for you as God prefers, just as Christ does for me. The bond of peace. So question, who do you need to seek peace and pursue it with today? Fervently, swiftly, eagerly. In this church, in your home, be encouraged. Loved ones, if you've confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've done that, you are saved. And here's here's the cool thing. You have been given or will be given the power of the gospel. And gospel power always leads to gospel progress. Gospel power always leads to gospel progress when we call on his name and humble ourselves under him. Always. And you may say, well, this is too hard. This is just too hard. How can I do this? Through Christ's power alone. Will you ask him for it and trust in it? Because as you see on the screen, he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Look at this. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Oh, how our world, how our homes, how our church needs that today. And it's available. Jesus is the head of the house. He's our peace that binds us together, and he will build his house 
as we walk in him for his glory. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us, please. What we have just read is completely impossible without the power of Jesus Christ in us and through us. I pray for those people here right now who have never confessed Jesus as their Savior. They would see their inability to live at unity, true unity at all. The the brokenness, the division that awaits them apart from you. God, I pray we would turn from our sin and confess you and start living in the power and position of the gospel. And God, you would advance your kingdom as we humble ourselves under you in our homes and this church, God, moving together in the bond of peace, the bond of unity, that when the world sees our homes, the world sees the church, they're like, I want what they have. I'm tired of the brokenness. I'm tired of the division. I'm tired of the hostility. I'm tired of my marriage constantly being one fight after another. Jesus, I need you. And you say, come to me who you are weary and I will give you rest. May we do that today, God. Spirit of the living God, let's press into all that you are and the unity that you bring. Everything else can wait. Search our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name.